So anybody in here, have you ever lost hope? That's a terrible feeling, right? I mean, when, when you just deep inside, you no longer believe that something better is coming. That, you know, better days are ahead. That it, that it can and will work out. Hope is an essential part of a healthy life. We, we have to believe that something good is coming. We, we have to believe that, you know, even if it looks bad, we can have something better or at least find some kind of happiness, something. Hope is so important. You know, nobody starts out, you know, in life and it's like, you know, we get married and start a family and it's like, well, I'm pretty sure it's all just going downhill from here. At least I hope you don't. <laughs> No, we we have hopes and dreams for the future. Sometimes those hopes are disappointed. Sometimes they work out. Sometimes we're surprised and things take a turn that we didn't expect. And, you know, we kind of gain a whole new perspective and, and maybe our hopes change, but we don't lose hope. Well, one of the things that as we look through Scripture, one of the common, I mean, all the way from the beginning is that God gives us hope. He makes promises, and he tells us the day is coming. The Old Testament, they referred to it often as the day of the Lord. And you, you had this you know, kind of mixture of it's this incredible day of hope where everything's going to be set right, and at the same time, it's going to be this terrible day where God's wrath is completely revealed. And it's like, which, which one is it? Well, as we study through, we realize it's, it's kind of all of it combined. But we have the story of hope is what we could call really all of Scripture. If we were to take the, the, the story from Genesis to Revelation, what is it? It's about the loss of the kingdom of God and the restoration then of the kingdom of God. And everywhere in between is the hope of what the kingdom of God is going to be. The promise of its coming, of what it's going to look like. And it and it kind of appeared in different stages. And sometimes, you know, you go through biblical history in the Old Testament, you think, okay, this is it. You know, things are about to happen, that the kingdom of God is, is here, and, and you would reach this high point, and then it would always seem to just, what, fall off. It would just, like, kind of disappoint. You know, you had the, the children of Israel and, and the promises being made, and they finally take possession of the promised land, and you're like, okay, this is it. You know, God is establishing his people. And then what happens? They fall into utter chaos and the judges come along and for a while they're good and then they're not. And they're like, okay, we need a king. And they get a king and it starts out horribly. And then they get David and it's like, okay, we're on the right track. And then they get Solomon and the temple and it's like, oh, it's here it is finally. And what happens? His son wrecks all of it. And the nation is split in two. And that kind of height is never reached again by a king. And so every time it starts to look like this hope is going to show up, it, it seems to dissolve. And the people would start to wonder, is it, you know, what are we missing? God, you've promised us this stuff, and yet it hasn't happened. And so what today we're going to look at in the story is the actual promise that God made. Because knowing the promise of hope, what it is he actually told us he's going to do puts our hope on firm foundation. 
and enables us to look at our life and the lives around us and the world around us and understand what's going on and that, yes, ultimately the hope and the truth of God is going to prevail. It is a sure thing. Now, how many in here know of a sure thing in life? We, we don't have many of them, do we? Death and taxes, right? I mean, that's a sure thing. But there's not a lot that's a sure thing in this life. And yet, the promise of God, the promises of God are absolutely a sure thing. God has not yet ever failed to fulfill a promise that he has made. And so today we're going to look in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. And in a prophecy, the, the, the prophet Isaiah says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Father God, we just come to you and Lord, we pray this morning, Lord, that you enable our hearts to know your hope. God, that we would would understand the promises that you have made us and we wouldn't misplace this hope, but God, it would be placed firmly in your holiness, in your goodness, in your life. In, in your kingdom. Lord Jesus, help us to see the truth, to know the truth, and be set free by the truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, in order for this promise to, to mean anything, we've got to set it in context. Why would God make a promise of a, of a child being born upon whom the government will be on his shoulders that would be called Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Why would we have this? Everlasting Father, why would we need this? Because the truth is, reality as God intended it is broken. And when I say reality is broken, I mean it is broken. Okay, it's not just that, hey, bad things happen in the world and we have to deal with it. I mean, God created the world to work a certain way. And when sin entered the picture, it got completely undone. This world right now does not function the way God intended it at any level. That's the personal level, relational level, cultural level, anything, okay? Life itself, we were not created for death, and yet death is something that we deal with. We were not created for sickness, and yet sickness is something we deal with. We were not created for hatred, and yet hatred is there every day of our lives. Everything is broken. And we have to start from that place. Because the world we live in is under a curse and it has real effects on our world. And the Bible lays it out so clearly for us. Genesis 1 through 11 is a record of the ancient world that is terrifying in its detail and its implications. And it's something that gets passed over a little too much as to what it really is telling us about this world. You see, we have a bit of the promise in 
Genesis 3, but really Genesis 1 through 11 is letting us know just how bad. You know, it started here and it was great. God created the world and it was good. And then we just see this descent into absolute brokenness and chaos. And it doesn't get better. I mean, if it were on a graph, you would have creation and it wouldn't be a gradual decline. It would look like the world just died as it plunged to a depth that really no hope could be had. And that's where Genesis 12, as he starts to deal with Abram and he makes the promises to him, hope starts to emerge again as, hey, God is not abandoning us to this situation. But I want you to to listen to something because in Genesis 3, we have the, the curse that is laid down on man. Okay, man... Adam and Eve rebel against God. They sin. They eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God told them not to. They said, if you do it, you'll die. They do it anyway. And when this happens, it says their eyes were open. They both knew they were naked. They covered themselves. They hid from God. And things just started going horribly wrong. Because in Genesis 3, there are three things that sin separated us from. And these are important because we deal with this exact same brokenness today. Okay, this is what sin does. It separates us from God. Sin separates us from God. What happened? Adam and Eve ate, their eyes were opened, and they heard God's presence coming, and they hid from God. And humanity has been hiding from God ever since. The world that you look at, when you look out into everything, you see a world hiding from God. Doing everything it can. Now, is it possible to hide from God? No. But we will try. And it shows just how broken everything is, is that such a futile effort of trying to hide from the omnipresent, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present God is something we're going to do, and yet we try to do it anyway. We try to cover ourselves and hide ourselves from God, who is the very source of life, who has now become a source of fear. Did God intend this when he created the world? Absolutely not. Think about this in in Genesis. It talks about it was God's custom in the cool of the day to come down and commune with his creation. Could you imagine that, that part of our life, what God intended is that you go to work, you do your stuff during the day, it works, everything just works like it's supposed to. Wouldn't that be great if it was just one day? If everything just worked? And that's what it was before sin entered the picture, everything just worked. And then you're, you're done with your day at work, you go home to your family, and then God shows up and is like, hey, how was your day? Tell me about it. Let's talk. Let me teach you. That's what God wanted. And he just, and it was his custom, and he shows up, and instead of it being a wonderful moment like it had been every time before, Adam and Eve hide. They hide themselves from the very presence of the God who loved them, created them. He had given them no reason to believe that they, they were in danger before that. But what happened? Sin entered the picture, and they were separated from God. And every time we sin, that same curse repeats itself and we try to hide ourselves from the very God who loves us. Now, if that's not a desperate situation, I don't know what is. 
There is a loss of hope there that I can't have a relationship with God because I'm afraid of Him. Because I'm ashamed of myself. Because I am separated from Him. So sin separates us from God. It also separates us from our sense of self. We don't even know who we are. Did you know that? Sin causes confusion at the very sense of identity of who I am. And when, I, when this happens, I forget who I am. I forget I'm, I'm a child of God. I'm created in His image. I have inherent worth because of God's image within me. I forget that I wasn't created for death. I wasn't created for sickness. I wasn't created for these things. And yet, I experience them and I forget who I am. And I don't just forget who I am. It goes actually a step lower. I become ashamed of who I am. At the very core. Not, not because you did anything. Just very existence starts to become an existence defined by shame. How do I know that? Adam and Eve. In Genesis 2.24 it says, And they were both naked and felt no shame. No shame whatsoever at who they were. Totally exposed before each other. In the Garden of Eden and before God. And no shame. The instant they eat from the tree, what happens? Shame at their identity. They cover themselves and they hide. They cover themselves, which means now they look at themselves and say something is wrong here. And I must cover it and hide. And then thirdly, sin separated them from each other. The curse that entered into the world at that point, the marriage relationship, the core foundational relationship of all relationships in this world that God created is now cursed in its natural state. He told the woman, your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. This is a brokenness. This is not God saying this is what marriage is supposed to be. He's saying this is what it's going to become apart from my help. Left to itself, Marriage becomes a battle for control in which two people no longer love and honor and cherish and respect each other, but try to control each other and have ongoing power struggles. And that's the state of the world. Which means if you just leave everything be, just leave it alone. Don't do anything to change it. Just watch what happens. You're going to see people hide from God. You're going to see people be ashamed of who they are. And you're going to see a power struggle all the time between families. That is the world. And that's just where it started. Okay, that's when the curse was, was given in Genesis 3. What happens? We go one generation down. Gen Genesis 4, what happens? Cain and Abel are born, their first children, the first human children. And what happens? Cain murders Abel. And one generation, and we're already killing each other. Out of what? Jealousy. Jealousy. That's it. I, God likes you more than me, and I, I hate you for it. And, and he kills him. And so Adam and Eve are driven from the garden to live out this brokenness, and it gets ugly very quickly. But God does not abandon humanity completely. In Genesis 5, another son is born who is named Seth, and that name means chosen. And it is out of that very line that the Bible picks up that Jesus Christ would be born. 
See, God is telling us early on, He says, look, I know it looks bad. And it's going to get worse. But I have not abandoned you. And Seth is born, and the line starts out. But He's not done telling us how bad things are going to get. So in chapter 5 of Genesis, Seth is born. Genesis 6, what do we know is happening in Genesis 6? Anyone? We have a group of people in the earth called the Nephilim that show up. Anybody ever heard of them? Look, I'm just going to be honest with you right now. This is things get weird. It gets weird in Scripture at this point because these are demons, fallen angels, having children with human wives. And these were very powerful beings that were the giants that we read that Goliath was a descendant of the Nephilim. And the Nephilim, they start taking over the world. That's what happens. How many in here knew that the Nephilim were the heading to Genesis 6? Because what else happens in Genesis 6? Noah. You see, mankind starts to become so corrupted that genetically they're even losing who they are due to these Nephilim. And so Noah and his family are the last pure family on earth. And so God wipes out the earth because it has gotten so bad. It's not just that evil has started to run amok and and everything's bad. It's that literally mankind is being lost. Mankind is completely being lost in this thing. And so God saves humanity. Now, how many have ever heard of the ark as salvation? Because it is. This is a story of salvation. It is not a story of God's punishment on the earth. It is a story of God saving humanity from the darkness that was there. In 2 Peter, Peter also talks about the ark as an ark of salvation. And so things get so bad that God literally has to wipe it out and he has to limit then. He he decrees that man's lifespan is going to be limited to 120 years because the evil is so great that he is perpetuating on the earth that he's like, I'm going to limit his years to 120 so we can limit the damage of what's happening here. Because Noah lives over 900 years. You have all these people living for, you know, eight, 900 years. Think of the evil that could be done in that time. And finally, God is like, okay, that, we got to stop this. So guess what? We are now no longer living as God intended us to live. You see, we look at it as normal, and we think, oh, yeah, 100 years, that's a good one. Man, you were just a kid. You were just getting started back in the day when God started the world at 100 years old. He wanted us. He didn't create us for death. But even after death entered, it was still, you know, eight, nine hundred years you got to live. You got to really accomplish some things in this world. The only problem is everything that was accomplished was evil. And it got so bad that it became spiritually dark and man became so corrupted that even genetically he's losing himself that God says, okay, I've got to limit this. And so he decrees that all lifespans are shortened. The flood happens. They survive. They start to repopulate the earth. And what happens? they immediately start returning right back to the very evils that were taken out. And you get to Genesis 10, after the story of the flood, Noah's son survived, but evils continues to spread. And Noah's great-grandson, Nimrod, how many in here have heard of Nimrod? Outside of the, uh, uh, the insult. Nimrod. See, if we really know what that's talking about, that actually is quite the insult, because Nimrod was an evil, evil person. It talks about that he was a mighty warrior on earth. He was this mighty man, except he was leading people to rebel against God. 
He was getting all of humanity united under his flag. And in chapter 10, they all start to rebel so that then in chapter 11, what happens? The Tower of Babel, where all of humanity comes together and they say, let's build a city. Nimrod's got them building cities. And he says, let's build this tower and and we'll have access to heaven. Now, I know this sounds ridiculous. We're like a tower into heaven. He doesn't really understand the world. I mean, really tall tower. Look, there was more going on here than just a feeble attempt at building a tower into the sky. And you know how I know that? Because whatever they were doing was so bad that God says, together, there is nothing that they have set their mind to that will be impossible for them. Therefore, let us confuse their language and disperse them on the face of the earth. What they were doing was so bad that somehow, I don't know how, so don't come at me later and it's like, hey, you say, look, I don't know how, but what they were doing was somehow going to allow them access into the eternal realm. That God was like, no, you don't get that. But you're not. I, you, it'll be possible with all of you working together like this in and, and one la- nation and one language and all of this. He says, nothing will be impossible. So what does he do? He says, I've got to limit them again. So he's got to divide them out. And he's like, all right, you all get to speak different languages. And you all get to spread out over the earth and, and be separated from each other because you can't be trusted together. Now, that's a long way from the Garden of Eden, right? The Garden of Eden was called delight. And it was like everything worked and there was no shame. And and God is there and he's present. And by the time you get to Genesis 11, just 11 chapters in one book, things are so bad that God is like, I got to kill them early. I got to separate them. I got to make sure they can't even talk to each other anymore. Now, I know parents, y'all understand that a little bit. You know, a long road trip. Don't even talk. I I don't care. Don't even talk to each other right now. Okay, that's what God had to do with all of humanity. He's like, y'all, shut it. And all of you go that way and you go that way. Because I cannot trust you. Do you understand that is how bad the situation got? We needed hope. Mankind needed hope. And in fact, it got so bad. Here's how Isaiah described it. Okay, Isaiah in 64, 6 said, We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. That is a powerless, lifeless, hopeless situation that he has described. Now, just recently, we had a you know pretty nasty windstorm. Somebody got delivered a trampoline. I saw that in the news. Carried it over somewhere, and they're like, here, the tornado gave someone a trampoline or whatever. <laughs> but the way you see the leaves just blown around. You know, it doesn't even take much wind, does it? It just blows those leaves around. That's what the image that Isaiah says, that's what we have become. We went from being the crown, the, the crown of creation, called to serve God but to rule over creation, the pinnacle of creation, literally, where he said, 
fill the earth, multiply and subdue it. Subdue the earth. You go rule the earth. Be in charge of everything here. I trust you. This is your calling. We went from that to saying we have become like dead leaves being blown around by our own evil desires. That is a brokenness that is complete. Everything in this world is broken. And if we don't believe that it's that bad, then the promise of hope won't it won't register in our heart as great as it, as it really is. You see, we've got to understand how dead we actually were to understand the promise of life, that what God, this amazing thing that he has, has promised to do. If we just think, well, I just have a few bad habits to overcome. I mean, who, nobody's perfect. If that's all we believe, then we don't believe the cross is really that necessary. We don't believe the promise is really that revolutionary. But if we understand how bad it actually is that we are so far below what God created us to be that it's almost like a sub-existence now from where he wanted us. And he has said, I promise I'm going to fix all of it. That gets to be a pretty substantial promise, right? That that same God we were hiding from comes back and speaks through his prophet and says, hey, it's coming. And he says, unto you is born this day. You know, there's a child that's going to be born. And, and this one child is going to fix everything that got broken. And he's the one that's going to do it. And it's the zeal of the Lord that's going to do it. It's not going to be your efforts. I'm not asking you to fix it because you can't because you're a broken mess. You can't fix it. In fact, you'll just make it worse. So he took it completely away from us. And he's like, this isn't yours anymore because you broke it and I can't trust you with it and I can't even let you talk to each other. I've got to separate you. It's so bad. So I will do it. And that's what he means when he says the zeal of the Lord will do this. That God himself will do it. And so here's one of the things I want you to grab on today is the promise of hope is bigger than we can imagine. The depth that we fell to is far worse than we want to admit but the promise is far greater than we can imagine. It is so much more. Listen again to the promise that he makes in Isaiah 9. The government shall be upon his shoulder. Can I get an amen? The government will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. That is one of the most amazing promises from God you will ever get. In a broken world that is broken like ours, this list is more than we can hope or imagine. See, God is saying that he himself, he will address every need, every part that is missing, every part that is broken, separated, weak, and lost, God himself will restore. And he's going to do it through this one child that will be born. That's got to be a pretty special child. 
especially as Isaiah is now prophesying in a time when kings couldn't be trusted. When you had, you had a good king and they served God for a while and then they had a bad king and everything went horrible and then maybe you had a good king and he kind of did what was right, but not totally. And you just see this waffling back and forth and it, just the weakness of humanity is on display. Even though they're a king, they can't seem to figure out up or down or left or right. And Isaiah's like, who's going to solve? How are we going to fix this issue? And Isaiah prophesying through the Holy Spirit says, there is one king that's coming that's going to do this. And he'll be from the line of David, which goes back to the line of Seth. God's consistent and he's, he's bringing it through. And he says, here's what he's going to do. The government shall be upon his shoulders. Chaos will no longer rule the world. This kingdom will have a ruler that will control all aspects of his kingdom. Now think about the enormity of that claim. Parents, can you control all aspects of your house? How many of you know you gave up trying a long time ago? Like, I don't know. You, whatever your name is. Dad, I know, I, whatever your name is. Come here. And yet he says the government will be on his shoulders. He will control every bit of it. And then, wonderful counselor. Wouldn't it be great if somebody just had all the answers? You know what? In the kingdom of God, Jesus has all the answers. The world suffers now under broken, faulted human wisdom. God will provide his own perfect wisdom for everyone in his kingdom. Mighty God. This child's name will be Mighty God. Now, don't miss what this means. Has anybody seen a child born that they're like, hey, I'm going to call him God? See, that, even for the prophets during that time, that's a weird prophecy. The child will be called Mighty God. What is he prophesying? He's saying God himself is going to step into this role. Why? Because none of us can do it. We're so messed up. We are so broken that we can't handle it. He's already shown that. Prophets can't fix it. The kings can't fix it. it. Nobody seems to have the answer. It just keeps descending into chaos. And so what does God do? He says, I will take care of it. And I will come as a child that will be born. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm setting the stage for a triumphal entry into the world that I created, I'm pretty sure a human birth is not how I would do it. A helpless child, that, that's kind of a paradox that he's creating here. And yet he says this very thing is what's going to happen is that he will be mighty God, and then what? Everlasting Father. He doubles down on it. Mighty God, eternal he, he's going to be the, the one uniting factor. Now, go back. What happened in Genesis 11? The world was dispersed. We were divided. And yet we will have one eternal father to unite us again under one banner in one kingdom under his rule. He's undoing the curse. Everything that went wrong with sin Jesus in his kingdom is going to set right. Which means unity. Which means all of mankind in the end, when Jesus returns and we get the full kingdom of God, 
We will speak one language. We will serve one God. We will have one kingdom. We will be one people. So I got a challenge for you. Look, look to your left. See him? Look to your right. You see, see everybody? Get used to it because they're going to be a whole lot more like them in heaven. And if you can't get along now, you've got all eternity to figure it out. Because we're going to be one family under God. United for all eternity. See, when he says this child is going to be the everlasting father, it's saying he's going to be the one that's going to care for everyone. He's going to draw them in. And he himself will care. And then he says he will be the prince of peace. The first thing that happened in this broken world was a murder. Cain and Abel. Cain murders his brother. That is not peace. That is the absence of peace. That is violence. And violence has dominated world history at every single turn. Every regime, every empire, every is always achieved through violence. And we can look at history and say, well, this war was just and this war was unjust. But you know what they all have in common? Violence. And yeah, maybe there's a time for violence for a just cause. It's still violence. That means the world is broken. And you know what God is saying here? He says in his kingdom, it's not going to be broken. Violence will be completely unnecessary. You won't have to fight for what is right. Because it will be how things are. He will be the prince of peace. The rule of God will be marked by peace. His kingdom will be powerful and peaceful. Isn't that going to be a glorious day? This is the promise that God has given us. This is where we put our hope. We don't put our hope in this world figuring it out. We put our hope in Jesus Christ who is the wonderful counselor, who will have the government on his shoulders. We put our hope in Jesus, who will be our everlasting father and the prince of peace. He is the one that will establish all of this, not us. We can't establish it in this world. This world can't bear it. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. And so, yes, we have a promise of another world. We have a promise, what we're going to get into, of, of a new heaven and a new earth. And that is where our hope is. And we can, that hope will sustain us in this life. Because we know that God saw the depth of our need. He saw the totality of our brokenness and the hopelessness of this world and promised to address every single That is our hope. And so, God himself promised to fix it. And it's a fix that nobody expected. This is where it gets fun and it gets strange because God doesn't do things how we would do it. Anybody in here ever had God do things the way you would have? Okay, what does that tell you? He's not like us. Okay, and it should also let us know if he never does things how I would do it, then that means I really need to double check the way I do things. Because God's not wrong, I am. <laughs> I'm the one that's messed up, not him. 
And so we get another sign. In Isaiah 7, 14, it says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, Emmanuel means God with us. So the very first promise that he gives on this is that God himself will be the one to come and fix it. Now, he defines it further later, and it just kind of, it's called progressive revelation in the scriptures, okay? That's a fancy theological phrase that you don't have to remember today, but I used it anyway. And it's just this progressive revealing of who he is, that he gives you a little bit at a time. He gives you a little bit of the plan here, and then he would literally wait generations and give you a little bit more of the plan. And then he would literally wait more generations and give you a little bit more of the plan. And so you had to to be able to take the big picture view, which we can do. We are in such a blessed position to have this book. These 66 books called the Bible, we are in an incredibly blessed position to be able to study this and look back over generations, thousands of years of what God has done and how he's piecing it all together. And we can look at it and say, oh, here's where God fulfilled this, and here's where he did this, and here's where he put this in place, and here's where this happened. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas is when one of the most major pieces of all of those prophecies, of all of that promises, one of those major pieces just slammed into the middle of the entire thing and made a whole lot of it make sense. Do we have any people in here who like to put puzzles together? I personally hate it, but I do, I've, I've done it enough, though, that I know there comes a point where you start to see the picture, right? And, it, and, and the puzzle starts to get easier to put together because you can see the picture, and there are enough pieces in place that you start to recognize where other pieces belong. And you're like, okay, I don't know, I, I don't know where it fits, but I know it fits up in this corner. I know it fits in this section, That's where we're at now is that the picture is now becoming so clear. We don't have all of it, but we have enough of it that we can start to look at it and say, you know what, I get what God is doing here. And it should, when we understand it correctly, give us a greater hope now than mankind has ever had. Did you know you live in the day of the greatest Christian hope that there is? Because we can look back and we can say, hey, Jesus came. You see, there were people in the Old Testament who had to look ahead and they said, I'm not sure I know what this means. I don't know how, how is he going to be a child? How is, he, how is the Messiah, the chosen one, also going to die? It doesn't make sense. But they believed it anyway, and that's how they were saved, by faith. We are saved by faith by looking back, but we get to look, we get such a blessed position because we can look at all the pieces that God has now put into place, and we're like, oh, the picture's making sense. I don't have all the pieces yet, but man, I can, I'm starting to get a real sense of this now in a way that people before couldn't. And so, faith today is taking hope in the promise of God. That's what faith is. It is believing. We can look back at everything that God has done and say, okay, if God's record has been flawless to this point, then he still promised all of these things. I can believe it. And I can see what he's already done and believe in the work he's going to do. And I take hope in that that is to come. Just like people in the Old Testament took hope that the day of the Lord, the Messiah was coming, 
we can take hope in the fact that the Messiah is coming back. And that our sins are forgiven through his cross. And that salvation is available and that I can be forgiven and and put in a right relationship with God. I don't have to reflect Genesis 1 through 11 anymore. Or Genesis 3 through 11 to be technical. I don't have to reflect that anymore. I can be made new. And I can believe that and I can take hope in what it is. Because Hebrews 11.1 tells us faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. That is hope. It is knowing that I don't see the kingdom of God yet. Yes, I still live in a broken world where those three effects, where where sin separates people from God and from themselves and from each other, is still in full effect. Nobody's denying that. I'm not trying to paint some kind of rosy picture, you know, rose-colored glasses to tell you that the world has been fixed yet. It hasn't. But the power of God is now present And the march is going forward to the kingdom of God where Jesus will return and all of that will be fixed. And you know how I can say that? Because a child was born. And that promise was fulfilled. A child was born of a virgin. That promise was fulfilled. And he performed the miracles that the Old Testament said he would do. And he predicted his own death and resurrection and pulled it off. The resurrection is the single greatest example and the single greatest giver of hope that we can have because he conquered death. And if he can conquer death, then yeah, I want the government on his shoulders. I believe it. I believe his shoulders are strong enough to hold it. I believe he is the Prince of Peace. I believe he is Almighty God. He is the Wonderful Counselor. And I take hope in everything that he is over and against what I am. I'm broken. I'm faulty. I'm a part of this broken world. But through him, I have new life. And one day, I get to be a part of that kingdom where all the brokenness goes away. And so today, we are presented with two options. Live life accepting what we see, feel, and experience right now with all the brokenness, division, hatred, identity issues, and insecurity that the world presents and accept it as final, where this is just how it is, no hope, this is it, we just have to deal with it, we just have to accept it, or... We can live life by the power of God, believing the promise that God has made is true. And that the world is headed towards a place where God is going to take care of everything. And how we accept that hope is by putting our faith in Jesus Christ and accepting him as Savior. He is that child that was born. He is the promised hope that was promised in the Old Testament. And when you put your faith in him, You are born again, and you become a part of his kingdom. And if you haven't done that, then today all you have to do is ask. We come by faith. We live by faith. If you will accept him as Savior, put your faith in him and say, I believe you are that child that was born. I believe you did die on the cross for me and was raised again. Come into my life. You will be saved, and this hope will apply 
It is that simple. If you have not done that, then where you are right now, you can do that as we pray. But that is the hope that we have. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for everything that you have given us. God, we know that the world is broken. We know it's broken and that we broke it. And that, God, we are a part of of the brokenness, God, that we can't change that, we can't fix it, but, God, that you have. You have offered us new life through your Son. God, I pray that we would walk by faith in that new life. God, if there are any here who have not accepted you as Lord and Savior and put their faith in your promise of hope, God, that you would just reveal yourself to them and that they would reach out to you and ask you into their heart, into their lives. So God, I pray as we go this this week before Christmas, God, that you turn our gaze towards you, that this be a season of thankfulness, God, and celebration that that child was born that your promises showed themselves true and that we get to to receive that hope and all that it means. Father, this is our prayer today. It's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.